Now, for those of you that haven't joined us uh, and, you're, and you're interested in any of this stuff, I encourage you to go take a listen. You can get on our website and you can listen to all the previous messages through Ephesians. There's 19 of them. We've gone 19 weeks to get us to chapter, end of chapter 3. And last week I told you we've turned this corner. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is setting up theologically this group of people in Ephesus, setting them up for what he's getting ready to explain to them to how they're going to live it out, which is what Paul does actually a lot in his letters. But he basically makes this theological case for the newness in Christ, for who they are, this new family of God, right? this new mystery revealed, and he sets them up by saying, this is who you are, and the last three chapters are going to be, and this is how you begin to live that out. We began that process last week. Now, if you remember, the first three chapters are all geared towards this one revealed incredible mystery. And that mystery is this, that God, through his redemptive plan for humanity, has taken the Jews and everybody else, which is classified as a Gentile, which includes you and me, right? Anybody that is of non-Jewish birth and descent and blood, anybody else in the context of the world is considered a Gentile. And he said that God's redemptive plan for humanity, he has taken the Jew and he has taken the Gentile, and through the death and resurrection of Christ, he has drawn them into one new people. That if we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we are all saved and we are joined together as one new people, one new race. And he calls that the family of God. All of chapters 1 through 3 are the theological outlinings of this great move of God. And it's incredibly good news because what it means is it means that if you put your faith and hope in Christ, you are saved. It means that for me too. We are grafted into this beautiful redemptive story that begins with creation, draws through the fathers and the prophets and, and the, the, the kings and the, uh, all these great moments through Old Testament history, bringing us to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey, being arrested, put on trial, crucified and raised from the dead, draws all people into this redemptive saving grace. That is the mystery that Paul says has been revealed and that he has been called to tell the world about. And in chapter 4, he's going to begin to look at the church in Ephesus and in proxy, you and I, as we sit here today in this community, he's going to say, this is how you begin to live that out. And last week he gave us a couple of things. He said, begin to live who you're called to be, right? Live in a manner that is worthy essentially the gospel of Christ, the calling that you've received. He talked about being humble, and patient and gentle. We explored what all those things look like. Well, this morning he's going to take it one step further and he's going to use a new metaphor that he hasn't used yet in Ephesians to talk about the family. He's going to talk about it in terms of the body of Christ and the oneness that we now have. Now, for you and I, we have to understand that this is a radical, we've talked about this quite a bit, a radical concept because there were no polar opposite groups in the world than the Jews and the Gentiles. God had chosen and set apart the Jewish people and everybody else was considered by nature of their faith completely and totally unclean. They couldn't even engage with the Jewish people or the Jewish people would see themselves as defiled and they weren't even allowed to worship God in the temple. That's how separate they were. And God has now told them all that they are one and the Jews and the Gentiles are wrestling with this reality. They're going, wow, how are we? And the Jews are going, how is that possible? And God is saying it's possible through Christ. And he's going to talk to them about their oneness. And so this morning, that's where we're going to be. If you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at 4 through 6 this morning as we look at this picture of the body of Christ and the oneness that we are called to as a community of God. So let's take a few moments. Let's just pray that God will teach our hearts. We'll do this, and then we'll motor through some stuff quickly this morning because I know we got a bunch of other stuff going on, which is super fun. But let's pray. Community is hard. 
You call people from different walks of life to love each other. You call the Jews to love the Gentiles, and the Gentiles to love the Jews, and Gentiles to love each other, and the Jews to love each other, and none of them look alike or get along or act alike or come from the same place or the same households, and some like bread that looks like this, and some like bread that looks like that, and they just want to fight all the time. Very similar to what we have going on here. We're from every different walk of life imaginable in this place. Most of us here because we're frustrated with someplace else. You call us to this incredible thing. You actually tell us that we are something wholly other than ourselves. That we are part of something beautiful. Not because we work towards it, but because you've made us that thing. This body, this family, this peace. And so Lord, this morning I pray that you would press on our hearts the beauty of what it is that you have put us into. The privilege and joy that comes from being part of the body of Christ. Hurt people, broken people, flawed people, pressed together in this forge of beauty through the gospel. Take a moment in your own heart this morning, before we open God's word, before we dive into these things, and just say, Lord, teach my heart. Just that simple truth. Lord, teach my heart. Take a moment, pray for someone around you. Pray someone sitting beside you this morning. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your kids, or maybe it's somebody that you've never met. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Just take a moment and ask that God would move in them, even if you don't know them. Lord, I don't know this person's name, but they, they look great, so move in them. Just pray something simple for their heart this morning. Lord, we ask you to teach us through your word. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. It is the Theopunestos. It is the very breath of God, and therefore, Lord, we embrace it. Teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 4, right? We're launching into this new section. So just as a reminder, Paul starts off that chapter by saying, look, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and I urge you to live a life, right, that's worthy of the calling that you've received, right? Be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love, right? So he's going to now talk about the whys. Why do we do this, and why is that important? So all those things we talked about last week, why do we do those? Listen to what he says in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he says, listen, this is why it is important and vital that we begin to do the things that I just talked to you about, living in humility, being gentle, and being patient with one another. Why is that? Because he says, essentially, you are one. Now remember, he's talking to a group of people that have been separated for thousands of years, spiritually, physically, all these ways. They have not blended at all. And now through Christ, they are thrust into this one new family. And he's saying it's vital that you begin to live wholly different. And he uses a new metaphor. He's been talking a lot about the family of God, that God's family with places at the table and all these things he's done in Ephesians 1 through 3. But he actually takes that one step further into this even more organic and connected metaphor. And he says, you are part of something much different even than a family. He says there is one body. Now, he's going to explain the body of Christ later on in his letter to the Corinthians and other places where he talks about feet and hands and heads and all these kind of things. But here he just introduces this idea to the Ephesians. And he says there is one body and one spirit. 
Now, that body is super connected, right? Like that metaphor of ideas, this organic living thing of which you're a part. And he does not tell them that they need to work to be a part of this body, that you've got to start living this way, that you have to start doing things this way. You've got to act like it. He's essentially saying, whether you like it or not, or live that way or not, when you surrender your life to Christ, you are pressed into and made new into one body. You are the body of Christ, and there is only one spirit which means you all are a part of the same thing, and it is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Whether you want to be or not doesn't matter. You are. You are the church. You are the body. You are the family. Now, this body actually doesn't have the same constraints that normal physical things have, right? Because it spans space and time. What that leads us into this idea that's called the invisible church, And that is the picture that you and I, while we worship in this local manifestation right here, right, this little thing that we have, we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are part of a church that is invisible. Now, this one is visible. We gather here. We're particularly doing things here. We love each other here. We have coffee here. We do all those kind of things here. But we are not limited to our connection with other believers in here. We are connected through space and time, which is called the invisible church, meaning that we are brothers and sisters with the people next door, with the people across the country and across the world, and those that have gone before us, which means we are a part of this organic body of Christ that exists in the areas that we cannot see. Now, why is that important? Because Paul says there is only one. There are not multiple. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved and you are part of the one body. Now, we're going to have particular differences and it's important to know those things, but they don't separate us when we proclaim a true belief in the resurrected Christ. So that means that we're as connected to the Ephesians as we are to Crown Heights Christian Church two blocks away. We are brothers and sisters. We are part of the visible here and yet the invisible church. A lot of times it's using church little c for the particular church, church big c for the church universal. And it's important. And it's important for a couple of reasons. And the first one of those reasons, really the really one I'll get to, is that we talked about this back in February, and that is this. For whatever reason, God has chosen to manifest his presence through the church. That's how he's going to demonstrate to the world what Christ looks like. Christ is the head that he is, as we learn in Ephesians 3, the church is his temple. He dwells in it, right? Therefore, we cannot say that we love Jesus and hate the church. Can't do it. It's actually impossible because Christ himself is the church and so are you. You don't have a choice whether or not you are a part of the body of Christ. When you give your life to Jesus, you are the body. It is what happens when the Holy Spirit takes over your heart and you are regenerated. You are regenerated into something else. You are regenerated as a new believer into a living temple. So you cannot say, I love Jesus, but I just choose not to love the church. The reality is you are the church. You don't get to choose not to love what Christ has made. But we're great at it. There's this little spiritual movement that's running around the globe that's kind of pushing people to say, hey, all you've got to do is love Jesus. The church is where everything went wrong, right? All the crusades and all those things over history. And even now, the Western picture and all those kind of things, the church is broken. Just love Jesus. Jesus is the church. You are the church. 
God has made it this way. And the reality is, of course, it's broken. It's made up of sinful, flawed, broken humans. God has taken people that are hurt and that have hurt others and that are flawed and that are wrestling with sin and working out their own sanctification. They're stepping into and trying to manifest what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he's crammed them all into one place. And he says, you will be the way that I show the world my love. Of course, it's broken. Because you are. You're the problem, right? It's not somebody else. They're just as much the problem as you are. If I were to look at your heart and sit you down in front of us, and you were to tell us all the things that you're struggling with or dealing with or failing with or the ways that you've gossiped and the judgment in your heart, I wouldn't like you either. That's all of us. So we can stop pointing the finger at the church up the road going, I can't believe they do this. They've got... The reality is they are your brothers and sisters. True. Now, we're going to have differences. Theologically, it's going to happen. The reality is, but everything boils down to this singular truth. Do we profess faith, singular saving faith? And we'll talk about this in just a minute. And Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And if so, we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We do not get to disparage it. It's Christ's, right? So he says, look, there is one body and there is one spirit. And in that one body, we have hope. The world around us is on fire, but it has always been on fire. I love it when people tell me, 2020 is the worst year in the whole universe. I'm like, really? Have you opened a history book? 2020 in America where you're stuck in your house with a mask, it's all right. You're not dying of the plague in the streets, right? Like, history is brutal, right? My, when we went to Africa back in 2009, we helped plant this church in Africa. And the translator that I had was living in, he was in Uganda, and he was saved. And when he was living in Uganda, the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, drove through his village on motorcycles, and they hacked his mother and his two sisters to death with a machete in front of his eyes while he hid in the bushes. And we complain about standing six feet apart. The reality is history, the world has always been on fire because it is steeped in sin. And the church, the redeemed picture of God, is the presence of God in the world. There is one church, and Paul said it is the one hope. Why? Because it's the manifestation of Christ. That's why it's a hope. It's not hope because you're going to pull it all together and you and I are going to save the world. We're doing nothing. We are the instrument, right? The body in which Christ has decided he will use to take the gospel to the world. It's this incredible gospel picture. There is one body, one spirit that's drawn together, right? And there is one hope, and you were called into that hope. So if you look at the church and this hopeless mentality, you're missing what Christ is doing. So he goes on, he builds on this, right? He says there's one church. He also says there's one way into this one church. There's one church and there's one way into it. And he says this, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. What that means is simply this. In fact, that word there, that he says there is one Lord, is actually the Greek word kurios, which is, it's interesting how Paul uses it. Now bear with me for just two seconds and I'll explain it. The Septuagint is a fancy word for the Greek translated Old Testament that's translated into, uh, into Hebrew or into Greek. So the way that this works is that the Old Testament's in Hebrew. When it gets translated into Greek, that version is called the Septuagint. So we have a Greek Old Testament, right? That way the Greeks can read it, the same way we have an English version of our Bibles here. Well, the Old Testament was in Hebrew. They translate it into Greek, and that Greek is called the Septuagint. That's the Old Testament in Greek. In that, right, 
When they translate the word Yahweh, which we talked a lot about in our, in our study when you were here with the names of God, you may remember this. We talked a lot about the name Yahweh, God's most holy and sacred name. That name in the Greek Septuagint, it's a Hebrew translated, is the word kurios, which means Lord. That's the name that Paul always uses for Jesus. So what Paul always does when he refers to Christ is he uses the Greek name that basically is connected to Yahweh. Now, the reason he does this is because he's basically saying Jesus is God. He's using a Greek word that gets connected to actual Yahweh. So what he's basically saying is that Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the one. Which, of course, is why Paul essentially is on trial when he's writing this letter in Rome, because he is claiming, and the Jews want him dead, that Jesus is God. And so when he uses the word Lord here, he's using the word curious, which goes back to this idea of Yahweh, which he says Jesus and God. When he has this incredibly high Christology that basically says there is one, one God, and Jesus is him. So there's this one God. There's also this one faith. One faith. Now, you can't look at the Christian church and somebody asks you, what faith are you? There is only one in Christianity. And that one faith is simply this, that we profess faith and lordship in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible's extremely clear about it. There's only really only one path. You don't have to look any farther than like Ephesians 1, right? Just a couple of verses earlier, Paul essentially says this. He says, Ephesians 1.13, And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed in it, you were marked with a seal. So he says, this is essentially how you're saved. This is the one faith, that you heard the word of truth, Jesus. You heard the word of God. You believed in Christ, and you were saved and marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit. The idea of an entry point into salvation is through Christ alone. Jesus himself says it, right? John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hear me say this, all faith roads do not lead to the same place. The world will tell you they do. It is lying. Scripture is incredibly clear. There is one way to salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the uniting factor of what it means to be a believer or a Christian. That is just biblically true. It's why Paul says there's one faith. There's not multiple ways that end up in the same place. If you want to find the one church, right, that we just talked about, the one body, the one spirit, it is through one faith, and that is a common belief that Jesus Christ is fully God. We surrender to his lordship and believe that he is, was crucified and raised from the dead. That is the access point to all of Christianity. Bible is extremely clear on it. So it says there is this one body, right? This one church. And in that sort of oneness, there is one Lord, and he is Jesus, Lord and Savior. He is God, fully God. He is Yahweh. They are one and the same. It is not three separate gods. It is one triune, perfect picture of God. Jesus is, in fact, Lord. And the access to Jesus being Lord is through that common faith. Now, this is important because these Jews and Gentiles are coming from wildly different pictures of God, right? The Jews have this deep, long history in which God had this sacrificial system in which they had to have access to, and they had to work, and they had to earn it, and they had to sacrifice for it. And the Gentiles come from a pagan thing where there's a thousand or a million gods, and one of them might be the right one. Maybe we just believe in all of them. And God says, no, there is actually one way, and it's not a sacrificial way. 
And it's not a pagan belief way. It is a common trust in the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. When you put your hope in that, there is no longer a Jew and there is no longer a Gentile. Which means for you and I, there is no longer anyone that is disparagingly different than you. When we surrender our life to Jesus, there is one singular faith. You cannot ask a book Christian, what faith are you? There is only one. There are denominational movements and things, and you can be a Baptist and you can be a Methodist, and those are visible, visible pictures of a particular church, but they are not the picture of the invisible church. The invisible church is that we are all a part of, the one church, right? It's complicated, I know, but it's beautiful because here's what God is doing, right? The church in Ephesus wasn't the same in church in Philippi, and the church in Philippi wasn't the same as the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was the same as the church in Rome or the church in Jerusalem, but they were all one. And you felt this. You know what this faith looks like. And hear me out. If you've ever bumped into somebody, maybe it was in another country or another place, and you started meeting them, and you realized something about their heart was different. The way they used language, the way they spoke, uh, the way you interacted, or maybe you met someone at work that you just knew. This person must be a believer. Like I can can feel it. Like it's just different. And you felt this immediate connection to them. And when they say, you know, I, I do, yeah, we're Christians or whatever, you just, your heart sort of leapt or knew it. And you have this immediate connection. And your response is not, oh, oh, well, you're a, a Baptist, right? No, it's, no, you, I, I, you're saved. Or, or you are a believer. Or you are my sister or my brother in Christ. There's this thing that unites these believers. That's this one faith, right? That doesn't really matter. And I've, I've told that story all the time. I won't tell it again, but the believer I met in China throws his arms around me and he just calls me brother instead of asking me what church I went to. He just knew that we were intimately connected. This is this one faith, right? There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. And he goes on to say one baptism. This idea of baptism is this idea where we surrender the lordship of Christ. We are claimed and sealed in him. There are not multiple different ways that when we're saved both by through the spirit baptism in which God's spirit comes and dwells in us and we manifest that out with a water baptism in which we stimulize to the entire world that we've been saved. There's not a separate one for the Jewish people and a separate one for the, uh, the Gentile people. It's one particular expression of the saving movement that puts us all into the same bucket, which means I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your life was like before you walked in here. I don't care what side of the street, road, skin color, ethnicity, how much money you have, what you've done, your history, your story. None of it matters in Christ. Every single thing is washed and redeemed through one Lord, one faith, one baptism to make one body. We are one. Paul drives this home. And for this audience, right, for us sitting here, it's like, yeah, I get that. But for that audience, man, this is, this is groundbreaking because they have got to hug someone that they were never allowed to touch before. I mean, think about this, right? As a Jewish person, you were not allowed to have a physical contact with a defiled believer or you would have to leave the city, wash yourself for seven days in these baths, these ritual baths, before you could go back in and participate in worship in the temple. And if you were a Gentile, you could go to the temple, but you couldn't cross the Sorek, which was the small wall that kept the Gentiles in an outer court. And if you did, the sign on it said you would die. That's how separated they were. It's like if we put a sign outside our church right now that says, hey, if you're from Bethany, don't you come in here. We'll kill you. A little extreme. If you're from Moore and you touch me, I have to go take a bath. What? 
That's how these people, and it wasn't just like they were, they were living it in their own imagination. God had established these laws. And then in Christ, God fulfilled them. He didn't just abolish them. He fulfilled them and wrecked them and then drew everybody together in this vacuum of beauty. And now they're trying to figure out how to live this way. What I once wasn't allowed to touch is now fully mine, right? It's this incredible vision of Peter that he has when all these animals now are okay because God has turned those laws upside down and said all is now permissible and a part of this incredible gathering. This one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And then he goes on to say this. We'll kind of wrap everything up with this. He says this in verse 6. He says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father of all. So meaning that for the Jews and for the Gentiles, for you and I, no matter where we come from, there's one God and he is Father. He is, he is the head of the family, right? As Christ is the head of the church because Christ, kurios, is God. They are one Father, one Lord, right? And in that, all holds together. God holds everything together. There is one, and he uses the term all basically to leave no one excluded. He covers everything that God could possibly be in charge of. He is over all, he is in all, and he is through all. And Paul ties this oneness in together with this idea of the sovereignty of God. We've talked about the sovereignty of God a lot around here because it's such a huge biblical principle. But the sovereignty of God is essentially the idea that not only is God in control of all things, but God governs and all things move through him. And there is nothing that takes God by surprise. And that God is always and forever at work in every single thing for his glory and his purpose. Nothing happens by accident and God is never caught off guard. So when, when Paul says God is in all and through all, right? He is talking about this scope of sovereignty that essentially says there is nothing that God is not in or part of or moving through. God is fully sovereign, which means this move of God has drawn all these crazy people into this one body, this one thing that's now going to organically be his instrument to tell the world about the goodness of Christ. And they don't have to do it perfectly. In fact, they don't have to do it at all. God is in it, through it, and on it, and he is going to be directing it. Because Christ is what? The head of the body, as we're going to learn in Corinthians later on. He is the head of the body. He is the head of this church. It's not me. Certainly not Brandon. Little, little tip of the cap. It's Christ, right? Like, what do we have to offer? Nothing. And he says, God is fully sovereign. Now, I know a lot of people that when they hear that idea, that, 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 that doctrine of God's sovereignty kind of messes them up a little bit. They're like, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to believe. If God knows everything and all these terrible things happen, then what does that say about God? The truth is, is that I want God to know and be in everything. I find such great comfort in the idea that God is fully sovereign, that he's in full control, and that he is doing no accidents, and nothing is out of his control, that the world is not spinning in chaos, but that God is working and ordering and moving. And as I was visiting with Pam this morning on the phone, just frying, she was telling me, she was like, I just find great comfort in the fact that I get to go home. And what I found amazing about that thought is that for Pam, this isn't an out-of-control situation for God. God is moving and has given her life and is now closing out her life, and she finds comfort in that. As hard and difficult as it is, she finds comfort in the fact that God hasn't forgotten her 
that this isn't something that he doesn't know about, and he's like, Pam, I'm so sorry, I had no idea this was going to happen. God fully is in her and through her and in all and through all, and she can rest in him. We do not have to be afraid of the things that we can't control. Look, we can't control anything in life, right? Control is an illusion. You can't control what's going to happen when you turn out of this building. But we can rest in the fact that we know the one who does. As Paul says, listen, there is one Father, one God, who is over all, right? Over all, bigger than everything, who is through all, every breath and every movement and in all, meaning fully dwelling within. I find great comfort there. So as we try and do this each week, as we go through Ephesians, we try and just sum a few things up, just some things we can walk away with, right? There's a lot here, but just a couple things. I'll jot them down. First, and that's this. As a follower of Christ, right, you are part of something so much more bigger, so much bigger and so much more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Don't disparage it. Embrace it. What that means is don't be the person that loves to talk down about other churches and other places and other communities, we don't really care where you left and what you didn't like about them and why it didn't work out and the building was too hot, the rock climbing wall was too tall, too big, too small, whatever. The reality is, is that we're part of the same family, literally part of the same body. That God made this thing. And there's going to be people in it that blow it for you. I get it. There's going to be a pastor that's a jerk. There's going to be people there you didn't like. There's going to be people like that here. Hey, we got a jerky pastor here too. We got the good one and the bad one. The reality is that's true everywhere you go. Don't disparage it. This is God's move. Embrace it. Fall in love with the brokenness of the body and let God use it to change the world, right? Don't be that person. The second thing that we see in all this, which is really powerful, I think, is the world is going to try and push you to a place of pluralistic tolerance. It's going to tell you that all roads lead to the same place and that if you don't believe that, that somehow you are broken. The reality is scripture teaches something wholly different. Scripture actually teaches us that all roads don't. There is one gate, there is one road, and that road is narrow. And that one path to salvation runs solely through Jesus Christ. And when you tell people that, you're going to be called a bigot or you're going to be called intolerant, or you're going to be called whatever it is. The reality is you're not making it up. You're just repeating what scripture says. And you're calling people to know that one way. It's not a way of keeping people out. It's a way of moving people in. You are going to be pressed from this point forward for the rest of your life, and you're already seeing it in the culture around us, right, to take Scripture and let it become subservient to culture. And if you don't, you will be outcast, and you will be pushed, and you will be broken, and you will be called names, and you will be shunned and pushed to the sides. It's happened for centuries before you. It's not worse today than it's ever been. It just depends on where you are. So embrace the reality that you're called to fall in love with Scripture and bury your life upon it. For it is the anchor point for the body of Christ. If it's not, we're just doing whatever we want. Scripture is the sole authority of God, right? Don't fall for the lie of pluralistic tolerance for the sake of tolerance. Embrace scripture, God's love letter to humanity, his heart for humanity. It's the perfect picture. It's not an exclusive. It's actually an invitation to fully inclusivity. All right. The last thing is this. 
I don't know what you're dealing with in life, whether you're struggling with things like we learned with Pam. Maybe you've got some physical things or financial things or marital things or relational things or just whatever is going on. Find peace in the fact that you don't have control and God does. There's real beauty in the idea of knowing that God is all and through all and in all and over all. You don't have to be. That's the glory and the greatness of the sovereignty of God is if God is over all and God is in all and God is through all, then you don't need to be the one that holds everything together. You don't have to be the one that makes everything work. You don't have to be the one that forces every thought to fit perfectly into whatever box you need it to fit into. You can trust the one that made it all, that hung the stars and the moon, that breathed life into your lungs, the one that promised he would never leave you nor forsake you. Now, that does not mean you are not going to walk through difficulty in this life. Life is hard. You are going to walk through difficulty. But what it does mean is that as you do, the one who made life is in it and through it and over it. And you can rely and count and call upon him. Find peace there. Tell worry and anxiety to get out of your life. Because you trust the one who is in it, through it, and over it. Don't let those things push out the one whose place it should have. God's sovereignty is a beautiful, trusting treasure. For God is one God. He is the Father, perfect Father. And he is over all and in all and through all. This is what it means to be part of the one, the body, the community. That Christ is over, in, and through. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this picture of truth, as simple yet complicated as it may be and may sound. Um, it's the beautiful call that you have for the church. Imperfect as we are, you are redeeming. Broken as we are, you are uniting. As much as we try and live as individuals, you force us into this beautiful, beautiful picture of the body of Christ of which we are connected not just with the believers in this room, but with the church across space and time. Even churches that we have people in that we don't like, the truth is there are probably people in here that don't like us. But we fight for something bigger and better. Because this is what you've done. You've taken what was once two and you've turned it into one. You've taken what was broken and you've healed it. You've taken where the church may have existed as hurt in our lives and you are healing God, we trust that you are a God who is bigger than all that we know, for there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. And we put our hope and trust in you. As we close our time in worship, Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts as one collective people crying out to a God who redeems and who saves. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and let us sing. Oh, praise Him, hallelujah, thou burning sun with golden beams.
that we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. All right, just a couple of quick instructions. Uh, we just got word from our man, Big Lenny. He is outside, and uh, we've got opportunity for everybody, everybody to just stay and eat, grab a plate, come back inside, turn some chairs around. He's got brisket and chicken and pork, and he just told us, through a little bird in my ear, that if everybody orders brisket, he's going to run out. So everybody orders pork, he's going to run out. got to spread it out a little bit. So, you know, maybe pick something different. But you get a side, a drink, and food. 
but go be the community. Go live as one. Find someone you've never met. Introduce yourself to them. Learn a little piece of their story and realize that we are part of the same beautiful family. Go in peace.